Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. You're joined by Annabelle Lee, the behind-the-scenes producer here at Shameless Media. Mish and Zara are on their media break for one more week, so I'll quickly catch you up to speed on what I've been doing here while they've been away. Because I absolutely adore editing the episodes you guys listen to every week, I thought it'd be cool to use this time while the girls are away to look back on some of my favourite moments of shameless interviews. We've had so many incredible people join us since 2018, so what better than a deep dive into the archives? Just a quick heads up before I get into today's episode, this one does deal with conversations around a number of mental disorders and may be triggering for some listeners. Today's theme is mental health. For me, and I'm sure so many others, talking about the storm clouds that can riddle my mind is something I've shied away from in the past. And surprise, surprise, it didn't make any of it easier to deal with. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, almost half of the Australian population between the ages of 16 and 85 will experience a mental disorder at some point in their life, and that's not including those undiagnosed. For a statistic as terrifyingly large as that one, it's astounding how alone you can feel with a mental disorder by your side. But it's the increased discussions with friends, family and professionals that slowly make those very conversations much easier to have. Something else I found helpful? Hearing people I admire in the public sphere break down the stigma around mental health concerns by so honestly sharing their own stories. Journalist and author Georgie Dent did just that when she released her best-selling book, Breaking Badly, at the beginning of 2019. Around that time, when Georgie came onto the podcast, she elaborated on what led to her nervous breakdown and the aftermath of it all. When I had my nervous breakdown, that was... 12 years ago now, Uh, so it was quite a while. And two years after that happened, I actually wrote an anonymous piece that Mamma Mia published. And we were living in the UK at that point. Um, I had had left my job at BRW magazine because my husband was offered a scholarship overseas, so we moved over there. And I was unemployed and I couldn't get a job, And but I loved writing and I had been working as a writer. And I just sat down and wrote this piece about what had happened to me and I sent it off, not sure really what would happen. And they published it and the response was, it was actually, even though my name wasn't attached, it was quite scary to think that this story is going to be shared Mm. with people. But it was a very validating experience because almost as soon as it went up, the number of comments of people who basically said, this is me or this is my sister or I have gone through something like this. It actually really blew me away. It was basically like a the much shorter version of my book. Okay. You know, basically this is what had happened. I had been working as a lawyer. I had Crohn's disease. I had endometriosis, all of these sort of health things, and then mm-hmm. it came to a head one night at work. I fell over with the vertigo attack and then I basically spent three months on my parents' couch not able to do anything, trying mm-hmm. to find out why I was so dizzy and why I was so unwell. And then it culminated in me being admitted to a psychiatric hospital and being diagnosed with anxiety. And that was rock bottom in a lot of ways, but it actually was also the beginning of my recovery yeah. because it was the time that I realised there was a, there was actually a something, a solution in a way because I, I could treat anxiety. Um, and so the story that I wrote was sort of a really brief – I mean it was about – it wasn't – I think it was about 1,500 words, so it wasn't really short, but – that blew me away, the response that that got. And then a couple of years later when I was back in – we were back in Sydney and I was editing Women's Agenda, I just had this 
compulsion on World on World Mental Health Day. I was like, I'm actually going to run this story. It was a slightly different version, but with my name on it. And again, that was the response blew me away. I, I gradually opened up. It hasn't felt. I, I haven't ever thought that I'm incredibly brave for doing this. When yeah. I stop and think about it, I'm like, oh yeah, it is quite something to just mm. open up your heart and soul and write your story. But I think because I sort of started a long time ago, it's been a gradual process, and I feel like this is. I feel comfortable sharing. I think anxiety itself is so prevalent so that even if you're not in the sort of perfect storm that I was and things aren't as extreme as being admitted to a psychiatric hospital, I think living with anxiety is something that affects a lot of people. I think also the sort of career burnout slash realising that you're not in the job that you want because part of – I mean, I didn't have a nervous breakdown because I was a lawyer and I didn't like being a lawyer. It wasn't as simple as that. But I think feeling trapped – in a job and feeling like I have to stick this out because this is what I did when it's not working for you. I think that is, again, an experience or a sensation that a lot of people can relate to. During isolation, a lot of us struggled to grapple with the unknown and our increasingly idle minds. TV host Osher Gunsberg spoke with Mission Zara over video call to talk candidly about how he deals with anxiety, OCD and fear amidst such strange times. Like anybody, you know, I'm, I I worry about I worry about stuff, but like a good sober person, I know to accept the things I cannot change, have the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm-hmm. All right, and I know that I've been working really hard in the last year or so on something called acceptance commitment therapy, which has been really powerful for me, and it's allowed me to. It's been quite transformative, actually around my anxiety and, and my obsessive compulsive disorder. It's um, helped me manage both of those things quite well. So I still feel fear, okay? But like the book says, you go, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm still going to do this thing, all right? And understand that fear is it's useful, but it might not be a fact, okay? might not be real, okay? Appreciate that. Thanks very much. Are you absolutely real? Can I check with somebody else? Can I check with my wife? Can I check with my husband? Can I check with my boyfriend? Can I check with my girlfriend? Can I check with my kids? Hey, kids, what do you reckon of this? Is this, what is this? Is it okay? It's all right. Okay, cool. Sorry, I'm just a little worried about it. No, it's okay. Fine. All right. I'll give it a shot. All right. Just because you feel it doesn't make it real. Mm. Very important. Very, very important. So just getting used to that. And yeah, sure. Dude, none of us have any, yeah, it's scary as shit. But like, I might, I'm, I might never ever go back to shooting. <laughs> you know that might actually happen. Uh, that's and that's what not, what we know as our economy, as the way we live, as the you know the mortgage that I pay, whatever. All that stuff might go away. It might. What can I control? Well, I can control hopefully how much sleep I get. I can control, obviously it's hard right now, we've got a newborn. I can control what I eat. I can control how I am to the people that I'm around. I can control how much work I do to make sure that I do my part around the house. I can control how much I exercise today. I can control how much I connect with another person. I can control the quality of the conversations I have. I can control what I expose myself to. We talked about junk food just before. Is the news I'm reading essentially just junk food or am I actually getting good news? Am I reading stuff that's the same as like drinking a litre of lemonade and eating a large fries or am I, you know, doing the right thing and like snacking on a couple of carrot sticks and a bit of hummus? All right, what am I putting into my body? 
both mentally and, and nutritionally. I can control those things. That's it. I don't control whether we let a cruise ship dock or how many people are standing too close to each other at the park or any, I, I don't control any of that. So I can accept, yeah, it's really uneasy. I feel really uncertain. I'm noticing that I feel really uncertain. Okay. And I can just be with that. For social media influencer Nawal Sari, her anxiety is intrinsically intertwined with her job. At the very start of this year, Nawal shared with the girls why it's so important for her to step away from work every now and then, and why she chooses to be open about her mental health with her audience. I think for me it's because I struggle to switch off, because even before I go to bed I'm like scrolling through my feed and it's just, and to me I'm like I'm not working but really I am because I'm still keeping up to date with everything and replying to comments so for me it was like I don't switch off or it's like I used to put myself on this mindset of like I'm for some reason I'm in competition or I'm I'm chasing for something but I'm not like it's just you got to go with the flow but I felt like I needed to be somewhere that didn't make sense like mm. it was just in my head so for me it was like I'm trying to be one, a sister to my siblings and, you know, a good daughter, but then also trying to have my social life. And I'm a uni student, which is stress in itself. <laughs> I was trying to work. So, in, and then I was trying to maintain my online presence and be the best I could be and, you know, really hustle hard in that because I, I found it so fun. So it was like balancing all of that just gave me so much anxiety. And, um, yeah, and I remember when, when the Christchurch shooting happened and that was like so sad, I literally had to get off social media for like a few days because I was like, this is way too much to think that that's like me and I'm, I could have been there and it's like now I'm just posting makeup and fashion and I just felt like it just didn't feel right. So situations like that happen and I feel like I have to detach myself and come back and, you know, refresh things. Mm. I think for me it's more so like I'm going to cry. No one's saying anything to me. I'm going to cry right now. Something's going to happen to me and I'm like I need someone, I need to talk to someone to be like am I going to be fine? Last week was Men's Mental Health Week, a really important one that encouraged men to seek support for their mental health concerns. Writer and former footy player Brandon Jack told the girls in September last year that he often tries to provoke those discussions around mental health with his male friends because they just don't happen nearly enough. When I got drafted and when I played my first game, I I puffed my chest out a little bit more and um, I think every player would say that. Like You feel like you're more important because sport in Australia is is so big and it's something that so many people talk about you feel relevant um and I think it's dangerous at the same time as well if you live in that bubble and think that you know that this is the ultimate thing in the world then when that gets taken away from you or when it's not going well then yeah everything kind of turns on its head my girlfriend Ellie is incredible but she knows that I go into times when I don't talk and she always will give me space but then make sure I talk about it she'll push me too which which is incredible um yeah, it's it's a thing with young guys. We don't talk about things that you know that that we should because we think it's a weakness. Or I don't know if that's the right word, but I've got some friends who I've been really close with for like ten years, and how many deep conversations we've had, I could probably count on one hand. But I do remember the ones that we've had because they meant something to me, and I think that's so important. Like Brandon, Matt Okine noticed this stifling of conversation and emotion too, soon after his mother passed away when he was a kid. The comedian unpacked where that suppression came from and how exactly it affected him so considerably when he joined us in May this year. I remember clearly not crying at all. And not not just like, oh, hey, I'm not crying. That's a bit weird. I remember like almost setting out to not cry 
through any of these deeply difficult situations that I was going through, I remember not crying at a funeral, you know, because I wanted to kind of prove to the people around me that I was able to deal with it, that I was dealing with it, that I wasn't that hurt by it. But the reality is I was so severely hurt by that that, that situation that I, I, it took me several years to realize how to change and how to let those guards down. I think there's a real tendency for guys to get to put the put the barriers up and to not realize that they're not blocking off external threats. They're actually stopping themselves from getting out. I think that's a problem that a lot of guys face. As you might be able to imagine, the distinctive experience of being on The Bachelor could precipitate a number of unexpected mental responses. For Abby Chatfield, when her abortion became a topic of conversation on set, she was taken back to a very dark, very difficult place. She described what that felt like in October last year when she sat down for a chat with Mish and Zara. I thought my edit was going to be everyone was going to be annoyed at me for being this like because I would cry every single day, like every interview, every Voxy. Like there were multiple Voxies that I like, couldn't use because I was sobbing so hard. They were just saying like, we, like we can't. When Laura and Snez came, the producer asked me if I was wondering what it was like to be pregnant or something. Like it was like just like a general like, oh, like isn't it nice to see Snez and Laura have pregnant? Wouldn't it be mm. nice to be pregnant with someone you love? And because I had an abortion last year, I decided like sobbing. So it was like I would just cry at random things. I think it is a guilt. It is a guilt thing still. Like after I had my abortion, I was in a very deep depression for like three weeks after. And my boyfriend at the time was literally the worst. He went out the night that um, I had my abortion because he wanted to be with the boys and have a few drinks, even though I was like holding onto his shirt being like, please don't leave me. And then he told me in the weeks afterwards that I wasn't fun anymore. So that was like a whole experience in itself. And then bringing it up with Matt, being embarrassed, being ashamed, being scared that he would think differently of me, as well as being so exhausted of explaining why I haven't said that I want to have kids, like to these girls. Like I never said that I didn't, but I wasn't being like, I can't wait to have babies because nine months before I'd aborted one and I felt guilty. So, and also the fact that I'd said it on camera and I wasn't sure if they were going to use it. Yeah, it was, it was lots of little things. And I was just, this is two months in, like you just, you're on edge at all times. You've had no contact with anyone except for, hit phone calls here and there. Yeah, it was just a really emotionally intense experience. In the house, I, w- I told the girls about my abortion and I, th- I kind of did it in a way that was to, because I don't want other women to feel ashamed for having abortions and I feel like it was sort of used against me and other things that I told them in the media were used against me. And I just don't want other, sorry. Don't be sorry. I just don't want other women to, um, like I want... The, the Bachelor is just this perfect, like these perfect women on this perfect show and everything's happy and great and you're just falling in love and it's this easy stuff, but it's not easy. And I just want people to know that like a lot of women have abortions and whether or not you know they have abortions or not, it's okay. And I just don't want people to be shamed for that or feel internal shame and maybe someone who's kind of in the public eye saying that they've had an abortion and that it's okay will help them. Hugh Van Kylenberg, the mental health pioneer behind the Resilience Project, provides so many people with the capabilities to build resilience and happiness. In April this year, Hugh explained to the girls how his sister's anorexia nervosa diagnosis impacted not just his family, but his perspective. Uh, When my sister Georgia was 14 years old, I mean, I talked before about a really happy childhood. It sort of changed when we were 
My sister was 14 and I was 16. We stopped being a happy family. But my sister was diagnosed with a mental illness, anorexia nervosa, and it, yeah, it just it completely ravaged her. Well, if you know someone, available all the listeners, if you know someone with a mental illness, you know very well it is not just that person who struggles with a mental illness. It's the people who are close to them, the people who love them. We all get, I mean, what I'm trying to say is it completely ravaged our family. And my sister, uh, 18 years old, she's in hospital because she's dropped below crisis weight. I remember the doctor said to me when we visited her in hospital, he said, he walked in, he said, oh, sorry, guys, you're going to go. I said, mate, we've been here for two hours. And he said, you only get two hours. And he said, I've told your sister if she can put on a bit more weight before tomorrow, you can stay for more than two hours tomorrow. It was like we're sort of her incentive. And I said, how much weight does she need to put back on so I can stay for more than two hours tomorrow? And he said to me, um, he said, I've told your little sister if she can get back up to. And my sister's not a short person. He said, if she can get back up to 31 kilograms, Wow. I'll consider letting you stay for more than two hours. So I remember at that point, I remember my, my family, would, I remember we left that hospital day, the first visit, I remember leaving the hospital and I was in tears walking towards the car and so was mum and dad and my brother and I had this feeling of like I just wish I knew what I could do to help mum and dad to be happy again. For some, the effects of past childhood trauma linger into the present and can burn the mind in significant ways. Comedian and author Rosie Waterland joined us in February this year and in this next clip touches on that time in her life. I was born while my parents were on the run from drug dealers, which is usually a good way to like set the tone of what my childhood was. My parents were both addicts and alcoholics and um, my dad had schizophrenia and my mum has bipolar and... um, It was an interesting, tumultuous time, my childhood. We were in and out of the foster family, my sisters and I, the foster system, and living with our mum occasionally, living with other family members. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder when I was about 17. I started having like panic attacks and, and, and flashbacks and anxiety and that kind of thing. And so I've been in therapy since then with the same psychiatrist. So Same one. Yeah, so we're coming up on our 17th year together. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm about to turn 34. Yeah, so uh, it's a lot of therapy, but a huge, aside from the therapy, a huge part of what's helped the last 10 or so years has been taking a lot of the stories from my childhood and telling them in the way I want to tell them, like really owning that narrative I felt like gave me a lot of control back over what happened to me and um, also making it funny has really helped. I mean, th- there's that saying, you know, if if you don't, what is it? If you don't laugh, you'll cry. So you might as well laugh. <laughs> and I feel like I've really gotten to that place. Yeah. Before Mission Zara went on their media break a couple of weeks ago, they spoke with YouTuber and content creator Mitchell Orville over video call. Mitch very generously shared with us the details of his past troubled relationship with drugs and alcohol and how that addiction affected his mental well-being for the worse. There becomes a point where I stopped drinking to have fun and I started drinking to just have an excuse to not deal with my life at that time. So by drinking and when I was drunk and when I was doing drugs, I was forgetting about all the other important things that I had going on in my life that were too much for me to handle at that time. I would then use being hungover as my excuse to not having to get up and do anything or to get up, work on my physical health or to work on my mental health or to deal with my finances or to do anything that was sort of what I needed to do. And it become like a vicious cycle for me where I was, I was living on borrowed time. 
I would do drugs and I would drink to borrow happiness from the next day and to bring it back. And then the next day I'd get there and I'd be trying to do it again to borrow it from the next day. And I was always trying to play catch up. And it wasn't until I saw it. There's just a day that like it, it clicks where you look at it and you're like, what am I doing? And I stopped, I stopped being able to even enjoy a drink. And like every time I would have one, I was like, I'm literally ruining everything I have that's going on around me that's positive. Me being vulnerable and me also helping people, it helps me too. It just keeps me that much more on track and that makes me realize how everything that I am doing is the right path and that's almost the strongest part for me. Ash London is a radio host who speaks to some of the world's most popular musicians, including Louis Tomlinson, who she interviewed on air three years ago. In that interview, Ash's words were taken out of context and a torrent of abuse and threats hit her almost instantly. To this day, as she told Mission Zara in August last year, that experience still wreaks havoc on her mental health and professional confidence. It was one of the most traumatic things that's ever happened to me, to be honest. And I think it's really hard to explain how vulnerable you feel and how it, it was, yeah, it was traumatic. So... I pride myself in my passion for music and respecting artists. And, you know, I don't do interviews where I put artists on the spot or embarrass them. That's just not my brand. And, you know, and all the record labels know that and the artists know that. And it had taken me, you know, seven, eight years to get that trust. And I felt like in one misunderstanding, it was all just torn to shreds. And I was being painted, you know, worldwide as... Um, you know, someone who hated him and who – and I had never said that, you know. I, you made I, a joke about his facial hair, right? Yeah, and and the boys – I was trying to explain what he looked like. I was like the one, you know. And the boys that I was, spoke, you know, talking with were making jokes and I was saying, no, no, like he's actually put out this single and it's really good and played this interview. Now, everything the boys said, of course, got attributed to me and then my offhand joke got taken out of context. So – I couldn't control what had happened. It just snowballed and I had, you know, over a million tweets within, you know, two days, I think. And it was vile, really vile stuff. So I didn't feel safe. And that I think was the hardest part is that my work was my safe place. And all of a sudden I didn't feel safe at all because I felt like anything that I said could be taken out of context, that people were always going to find something negative in what I was trying to say and really stopped trusting my own ability to communicate and that's something I still struggle with two years later I get palpitations if I feel like something I've said might be taken out of context and I'll I will ruminate over it for days and speak to producers and they'll be like Ash it's fine like what you said was actually fine I'm like you know but, but what if but what if you know and the world moves on the internet moves on and you know the internet isn't real Twitter isn't real it's not a real world and of course I know that but um at the time it was horrid, you know, it was absolutely horrid and I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. But the support I got from, you know, the people that I care about, you know, I had Bridget Hustwaite from Triple J send me like sunflowers with the most beautiful note about how I bring sunshine and happiness, you know. And I had people from all all of the record labels reach out and say, mate, we love you, you're so good at what you do and, you know, we're behind you. And so I received a lot of support. But it was a pretty horrendous time and I'm still kind of dealing with the ramifications of that, what was really quite traumatic. And you can look at it on this and go, well, who cares? Like it's, you know, some people on an internet forum said they wanted to murder you or hoped you died. 
But when it's happening to you and you just feel so unsafe, I think that's the word I would use. I just stopped feeling safe. In Celia Pocola's line of work as a comedian, she finds interacting with people and keeping busy to be very helpful in disarming her anxiety. So when isolation hit, she found herself having to find new ways to calm her mind within the walls of her Perth home. Silence and stillness is my enemy. Bad place. That's a bad, bad time. Bad, bad, bad. But it's just about not giving in to that. I need to be as active as possible. You know, putting on day clothes, writing lists. Need a list. Even if it's just eat food, tick it off. Feels like we're still doing something. Because it's also now it's difficult to plan ahead. Normally to have some stability, I don't know what it's like for you, but for me I need to have things to look forward to or working on a bigger something because otherwise everything feels kind of pointless and that's a bad place for me as well. But it's difficult because you don't know. We can't tell how long this will be or when what it will be like. So it's hard to plan things for the future. So small little projects, I've been cooking and that kind of stuff. So I'm doing good because I know this but it's like and I said this on a it was for a mental health awareness thing it's like you know with children you need to just continually give them activities because they get bored every five minutes it's like that but I'm 37 and I'll try anything I've got coloring books I'll try and cook a thing I'll sweep I'll just move stuff from that side to over there so it's just about puzzles I'm doing ordering a lot of stuff online that takes up a bit of time as well before Jules von Hepp founded his tanning brand, Isle of Paradise, he worked in the fashion industry, an industry that perpetuated his body issues at the time. In his interview with Shameless in March this year, Jules spoke about going from shaming his own body years ago to creating a business that admires all kinds now. Working in a fashion agency, I was totally made to believe that my appearance defined who I was. And that was very much at my darkest time. I felt very alone then. And then standing on a shoot and hearing someone who was very high up in the fashion industry tell a girl who must have been about 17 to go to the bathroom and throw up before a show and seeing this girl walk away and start crying, it was scarring. It was a very dark time. And I knocked on the door and I said, are you okay? And she was just floods and floods and floods of tears. And she was like, I have to do this. And I was like, no, you don't. You literally don't. You just say that you have and don't do it. And she was like, okay. And we'd, I had a conversation with her. And then she left. I think her booker came and I didn't see her again. But it was just, that was, there are parts of this industry that are dark. And that was one of those moments where I was like, oh my gosh. And I think that's when I knew I didn't really want to work in that side of the fashion industry. I know how it feels to look in front of the mirror and absolutely hate how you look. I know that to feel, and I'd been to the bottom Mm. I know how it feels to stand and bitch about your thighs and to grab bits of your body and be like oh I just wish that wasn't there for me spray tanning totally opened my eyes to the fact that self-hatred on appearance is a complete global epidemic almost 99% of people who take their clothes off in front of me for a spray tan will apologize about something on their body. Whether it's through nerves or whether it's through embarrassment or learnt behavior, an apology will come. This final clip today comes from the effervescent Tanya Hennessy. Tanya began her career creating hilariously relatable video content online. And now she's a best-selling author who's all over the TV and radio too. But as she explained to Mission Zara in August last year, reaching that ultimate career goalpost doesn't just magically wash away what troubled her mind for so long. And she's not afraid to talk about that. I don't have the shame that maybe some people do. 
I don't have that. I don't care. <laughs> like, and if it normalises it for somebody, then that's great. And I, I wish that people had been more honest in the media when I was growing up about um, these types of things because I thought I was alone. And so if somebody... If, I, if I'm in a position where I can say and talk like this, then maybe somebody can hear that and feel less alone. I guess that's so much of what I want to create in life is to be like, hey, you think you do this weird thing? Everyone does it. We're all fucking weird. No one knows what they're doing. Everyone's got anxiety. So many people have a cousin who's got, you know, schizophrenia. Like, this is normal. This is life. It's hard and it's messy. And I know that we saw TV shows that presented it as different and there was, you know, women on talk shows with their legs together and fake tan and looking a certain way. And it's like, not every woman looks like that. We can have diversity in television. We can have diversity in the radio uh, world. And, and we can be honest about the things that affect us and plague us because maybe that will help one person stay on this earth. Every sort of comedy comes from truth. I remember I saw a Hannah Gadsby show like at Edinburgh Fringe Festival, like 2007. And she was flyering her own show on the streets. And I fucking, like, because she was big in Australia, but not as big, you know, overseas. Mm. And I was like, I've got to go see this woman. I love her so much. We sat in the audience. There was, like, nine people in this audience, like, really small, like, nine o'clock at night. And she performed the shit out of this show, I might say. Like, nine people, she still gave it fucking everything. And I was like, I respect you so much. You've taught me a lesson, lady. Uh, But her first line was like, I've got depression. Surprised. (laughs) And it was, like, so true. You know, like, and she just called it straight out. And everyone laughs because it's like, fuck. (laughs) same like that is all for today's bonus episode of shameless with me annabelle lee i have had so much fun putting these together and also getting to listen back through interviews with such glorious people like the ones you heard from today I hope these episodes have done an okay job at occupying this space while the girls were on break. But if not, that is okay, because Mission Zara will be back on Monday. If you guys liked the sound of any of these In Conversation episodes, please head to our website, www.shamelessthepodcast.com, to find our entire backlog of wonderful chats. Before I head off, just a quick reminder that our very first book club episode is dropping next weekend. At the start of every month, Mish, Zara and myself are picking a book for the community to read and we'll jump on the mic together at the end of that month to talk about it with you guys. I will pop a link to join the book club Facebook group in the show notes and I guess I will see you next weekend or hear you next weekend. No, you'll be hearing me next weekend. You get the gist. I don't really know what I'm talking about anymore. Okay, bye guys. Oh, hi. It's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week now. Every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which, let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to... To our show, please do head to your favorite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.